Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the first American woman to win the Boston Marathon in more than 30 years is a Latina. William Latigua attempts to regain his statehouse seat again. And Spanish-language political ads help bring in Latino votes. All that and more on this week's Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, Company One Theater's Wig Out takes audiences behind the scenes of drag culture. The narrative is so rich with things that are connected to identity, connected to gender, connected to sexuality, and what happens if you decide to not label yourself by any of those three things. Who are you? Exploring the joys of expression and the struggles of identity through competitive drag balls. But first, joining me in the studio, Julio Ricardo Varela, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. Glad to have you. And Cristela Guerra, reporter for the Boston Globe. Hello, Cristela. Hi, happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have both of you. Let's start off with some good news. I am completely surprised that the winner of the Boston Marathon, Cristela, mm. the first woman in 30 years, is Latina. You know, I guess I am and I'm not. I, I kind of, <laughs> when I saw her running, I'm like, Hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's family, <laughs> you know, but I also never want to jump to any conclusions and make any assumptions. And I started reading up on her and nobody said anything. And I was like, God, I hope this is a story. This would be a great story. And mostly it was just admiration, right? Yeah. Just admiration. She just, it's not something I could do. So her given name is Davila? Apparently. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Apparently. Do we know Lista, much? I think from Southern California. And she went to okay. high school there. She yeah. went to high school there. Yeah. You know, here's one of the things. I, I'm going to be a journalist for a second. Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't think anyone's... Yeah, for a second, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, not that I'm not. Yeah. I, don't know any, I don't think anyone's ever asked her. Like, I've, I've read these interviews, yeah. and, mm, and I think it's, like, Twitter. And I think part of this, and I'm not trying to... I just haven't heard her say publicly. Like, yeah. maybe she does. Like, yeah. I know she trained in Michigan. I think there's this sort of like first thing yeah. movement in digital media that I think people are trying to use it to get attention. So I, I don't know if she's gone on record. Has there's she? There's a Runner's World article Good. from 2011. Thank you. Uh, which you identified her. Thank as, you. Like I, I have, I've yeah. been traveling this week and yeah. I saw it and I, I did talk to other people who were like, she's never addressed it. So it's cool. I mean, I'm not saying it's not cool, but I'm... I yeah. think it depends on when you bring up race, right? Like yeah. it depends on the story journalistically how... Who is it of interest to? If Me Too reports it, mm -hmm. then you're going to say it, right? right? And if we want to dig into it, you know, who taught her? Is it something she learned from her family? Where is her family from? And then I feel like there's this organic way to get into the fact that maybe her was Mexican-American potentially, mm -hmm. I think is what we're hearing. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, someone in her family maybe influenced her passion for running. Who knows? It's light, and yet it's also deep because yeah. it makes us all feel kind of... I think it's the I, I think it speaks to the issue of representation yeah. because... 
if you're at the Boston Marathon, let's be honest, like yeah. how many like Latino sports journalists are there? Yeah. Right? Who might even make the, like if I was there yeah. Monday, I'd be like, hmm, kind of looking brown to me. <laughs> Like well, I would, you, know you know what I'm saying? Like I probably would have asked the question straight up and be like, "Oh, you went to Chula Vista High School. Like, what's your background?" Yeah. So I think it's a couple of things. First of all, her given name is Devila, mm -hmm. but the name that everyone knows is Lyndon. Mm -hmm. So people didn't go beyond that. And yeah. I will only say this from a journalistic standpoint: you know, usually somebody that comes up and you've not heard of them before, yeah. you do like a deep dive. Right. And so since Runner's World is a fairly yeah, with, you know. Yeah. I'm yeah. mainstream magazine. Yeah. Somebody could say, oh. Thanks. I'm just like yeah. surprised. Like yeah. there's a part of me that's like, maybe I'm like, I'm getting a little bit upset about the fact that not as big of a deal was made of this. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's just an interesting point. Sorry. And, and, <laughs> and her whole yeah. thing should be, uh, all of her should be talked about, you know. They say American. Yes. They keep saying American. And yes. she is American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's also Latina. Yeah. And it's like, no, there is no mutual exclusivity there. It's like this un underlying, like, she is American. She's also Latina. Right. And right. It's, it's, it's a fantastic detail that more people should know about. I think it was hard to get past, you know, they were just trying to grasp, oh, woman, oh, 33 years, oh, oh, Boston. American. Yeah, oh, Boston. And then, you know, and I yeah. think it's like yeah. the fifth anniversary, like there was yeah. a lot put on the yeah. fifth anniversary. Yes, and was. I think, I don't think anyone expected her to win either. So I think people yeah. were like, what? I don't think she expected to yeah, win. Yeah, so I think like no one was ready. I'm just going to say this as a way to close is that when the going gets tough, that's when the women come forward. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. Ah, <laughs> I'm okay. going to say, rainy, cold, you know, can't make it, tough guys, men. Okay, there, when, that's when the woman comes forward. And two women <laughs> waited for each other in the bathroom. There you go. Because they knew they'd get ahead anyway. Yeah. What? So, that's what kind can, of boss. I'm sorry. That's, I'll give you oh, that. Oh, super boss. <laughs> that's what I can say. All right, well, I wanted to start out in a positive way because everything else is so intense. First, yeah. the power went out this week again in Puerto Rico, but mm -hmm. not one of those often on again brownouts, which is bad enough, which mm -hmm. means one section of the country sort of goes out and then it comes back. This was the first massive all across the mm -hmm. island, everything shut down 100%. Nobody had electricity, just so people understand what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's Julio. Hey, a couple of things about this, right? Everyone lost power. Yeah. About a week and a half before, there was a semi-blackout. Yeah. It's fascinating of people watching because you, you kind of go, here we go seven months after the hurricane. And let's be honest, there's still people that have not had power for seven months. That's like right. It yeah. was maybe, and it's about 50,000 customers that have not had power for seven months. Yeah. So like, yeah. add that. What's happening now is... The fiscal control board that, yes. that you know, they yes. run Puerto Rico. Like, they submitted a fiscal plan and voted on it late last week. They voted six to one. Yeah. For it. Yeah. The fix is in. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you had a fiscal control board voting six to one about this fiscal plan when people don't have power, like, the day, like, it's, it's like, yeah. hello, yeah. colonialism. And the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló, who wants to privatize the public utility company, which is called PREPA. It, what's happening, it's becoming so common. I say PREPA now to a Boston audience. Mm -hmm. People are like, oh, yeah, I know what PREPA is, yes. right? It's supposedly a subcontractor from Cobra, which was one of the contractors for Wasn't somebody who messed up before? Someone who messed up before. Yeah, right. And he's calling for their immediate, like, removal. And there's a lot of politics, too. I think there's talk, you know, the electrical union is saying, yeah, you know, the government of Puerto Rico wants to privatize mm -hmm. us. So they want to make us look bad. So it's it's just a mess. It makes me really upset. 
Let me just say that uh, Frontline, which is produced here at WGBH, is doing a special, a look back, and I commend them because I don't know how they can keep up with everything changing. Here's just a little piece from the trailer from that, just to, so people get a sense of what is still percolating there. Once you went inland, it looked like a bomb hit Puerto Rico. The hurricane ravaged the island. A decade earlier, a financial storm devastated its economy. Who gets left paying the bill? Banks get out and everybody else gets stuck with the bill. Frontline and NPR investigate. Almost all the warehouses were empty. Generators, blue material were just not there. Blackout in Puerto Rico. So ironically, their whole piece is called Blackout. Um, and here we are. I mean, I'm sure when they named that, they weren't expecting to have another massive blackout before the piece aired. I also wanted to point out, because they mentioned the financial piece that Julio mentioned, Cristela. Mm. There was a big piece, I guess a couple of days ago, about how here we have this poverty-stricken island. Here we have all the stuff that we know is happening and people are struggling and the electricity and all that. But the bonds are being bought up by... Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's so confusing. By Wall Street. Yeah. yeah. And so people are looking at that going, huh, what does that mean? And I mean... Mm. A lot of people coming to the front yeah. to buy this. Yeah. And there is some fear that what is going to happen is that they're just, they assume there's going to be some payoff down the line somewhere. And so they're buying this all up. So the island is going to be owned by Wall Street, I guess. <laughs> the island's yeah. already owned by Wall Street. Well, I'm sorry, know, but, yeah, okay. oh, no, 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 please. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, sorry, I, like, yeah. please, I, I don't want to. No, no, no. I, I mean, I think as a, as a reporter, the families that I've been dealing with are here. And they came in the last six to seven months. And they want to go back and they can't go back. And the idea of diaspora and to know that not only have you left a place, you didn't want to, you were making good money, you had a home, everything was in place, despite all the financial issues already there before Maria. Um, what they would tell me is now it's not even ours. Right. This is our land. And now it's it's it wasn't ours in some ways, but it was because we had homes there. And now we're here trying to adjust to a new system. And what they're telling me is we don't know where to be. Yeah. There's no rock. There's no hard place. There's just home, which no longer is home and the new place, which should be home because we're American citizens. But it doesn't feel like they want us here either. There's so many things, but to stick on the fiscal crisis for mm. people that don't understand basically what's happened while all this is happening is that the the control board has a fiscal plan that's going to make massive austerity measures and pension reform and labor. Like, it's a huge haircut. Like, it's not even a haircut. Mm. It's like you're shaving your entire head off. Mm -hmm. And the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló, is, has all of a sudden become defiant. And so the board voted six to one. Rosselló is probably going to sue the fiscal control board now. Like, it's going to... how does that work? Because... This is like what I say. It's like neo-colonial. Like the point that you just said, Cristela, yeah. about like Puerto Ricans in the diaspora, Puerto Ricans on the island, don't feel like they own their mm -hmm. destiny or own their right. It's not theirs well, anymore. Yeah, and, they, yeah. and then it yeah. gets destroyed. And then you have this horrific, the federal response was just ridiculous. Like they weren't ready. So it was all, it literally is this massive catastrophe that not only is, has physically destroyed the island but it's destroyed the island mentally socially the heart of it i mean i know people talk about resilient puerto ricans I, yeah like that only goes so far this is destroyed we are destroyed no, as a people point, you have to have resources to and rebuild. like if yeah. in the push to cancel the debt mm -hmm. people want to cancel the debt and i talk to everybody in puerto rico both here and on the island you know here in boston I, no one likes the fiscal control board anymore like even the most 
staunch conservative Puerto Ricans who are like fiscal responsibility. Yeah, we kind of messed up. They're kind of like, oh, this isn't working. And so, it hasn't even gotten started yet. That's really. the scary well, see, that's part. The thing. And yes. they were leaving already. Yeah. Because there was right. no work. And, that's right. You know, so like I was in Puerto Rico early yeah. last year in February. And I remember there were articles already being written mm-hmm. about the number of not just students that were staying looking for work, the, the brain drain that was mm-hmm. happening, which happens anywhere. But what we're going to see in five years is not the same Puerto Rico that we saw five years ago or 10 years ago. I don't know what we're going to see. And I don't know who's going to be living there. Yeah. And I think that's what worries Puerto Ricans the most. All right. Well, let's move from that story. Um, All of a sudden, that Boston Marathon winning story, like it was, yeah, I know, so much better now. (laughs) If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of Latino Rebels and the Futuro Media Group and Cristela Guerra of the Boston Globe. We're discussing the local and national Latinx news you may have missed. All right, let's move on to a story you just did, uh, Cristela, because I read the comments and You know, I don't know why, because it upsets me, but whatever. Um, Your piece is about a rapid response network, which is in Somerville, Mm -hmm. which uh, aims to notify the community about ICE raids. That's the organization that's scooping up people. Originally, I just want to put this on the table. It was set up to go get the criminals and get them out of the country. And now it appears that the directives have changed and they're just picking up lots of folks with no apparent connection to any criminal anything. So it's gotten very intense for these communities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So two sides, right? The immigration advocates would say anybody's been caught with a parking ticket or jaywalking. But I guess for someone who's undocumented and is already trying to stay off the radar, that puts you on the radar. So to your point, they're going to know where you live now because you're in the system for something that's minor, not because of maybe what would be considered a larger uh, infraction. So then What they're advocating is not just video, not just there is no interference, but there is a sense that everybody will receive the text. Everybody will know the house and those that are in social services or maybe counseling or can provide food. Anybody that can do something to help will arrive. They'll take video if ICE is still present and then afterwards help the family. What I got from ICE from the local spokesman is that this is going to make their jobs 10 times harder. Um, because there's a reason for the secrecy and there's a reason for the way that they do things and they don't want to make things more difficult than they have to. They're just doing their jobs. Right. So in the comments to your piece, people are like, we're talking about people who are here illegally. So why is this a discussion and why do they get a heads up? That's almost always the comments on the piece. Right, right. I know, but I just want to put it out there because people are in their car right now screaming at the microphone. So I I need to articulate that so you can respond. Yeah. Yes, go ahead, respond. A couple of things about this. First (laughs) of all, ice lies. And and I'm I'm going to tell you in a second. And I'll give you a specific... If you just hold that a minute because I have a story about that in just a second. Yeah, because (laughs) we we just did a piece on Latino USA this weekend with Estrella... Estrella, who was, uh, she was seeking a protective order from her boyfriend in an El Paso court, and she was arrested in a courtroom. And ICE was caught on videotape saying, no, we didn't arrest her in the courtroom. We arrested her outside. And so there's video footage. So this whole notion of ICE being like, well, we got to do our job. And the, the statement that Crisella, that you got in the piece from John Mohan is this a typical ICE statement saying using local community organizations to help individuals evade federal immigration law, many of whom may be facing convicted criminal charges, which is exactly the point. They're very minor. Does not benefit, puts the communities at risk and like danger and we're protecting you from these criminal aliens. And I'm like, oh, come on, have you been to Somerville? 
Like, seriously, you go to Somerville and it's like, there is no invasion. We're not being run by El Salvadorian gangs here. Mm -hmm. Like, these are hard working people that it's a civil offense. Let's be real. Federal agencies lie. They pad the numbers. They did it during the Obama phase. Like, but now they're out in public. Like, I always say, it's like, ICE was Obama's mistress. Now ICE is Trump's wife. Mm -hmm. Like, they're public with their relationship. And they do not like when I bring this up. I've been targeted by ICE as a reporter on social media. And so, like, if the community wants to respond with this and use technology to help the community, that's the community responding to what it is. It's a police state. And there's a real fear out there. I did want to get to this story, which happened last month. And I don't know that people paid attention to this, but this spokesperson for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that is ICE, resigned, saying he could no longer put forward some of the information he'd been asked to put forward as a person who worked in the agency because it was wrong. And he cited Jeff Sessions, who is the attorney general, and also the ICE acting director, Thomas Homan. I quit because I don't want to perpetuate misleading facts, Schwab told the San Francisco mm-hmm. Chronicle. I asked them to change the information. I told them the information was wrong. They asked me to deflect, and I didn't agree with that. Then I took some time and quit. Now, his, his last straw happened to be because of the back and forth between Sessions and the mayor of Oakland. Mm-hmm. As the mayor of Oakland said, she was going to do the same thing. I will alert people in my community if I know if there's going to be an ICE raid. And in the statement that the official statement was that there were criminal aliens in the community which this guy says is not true, and he worked for the agency. There are a lot of apps coming about. It's not just, uh, there are a lot of tech services. There are a lot of, sort of similar to me anyway, to some, I think it was the ACLU or some organization that created one when you're stopped by the police. In all cases, very much focused on video. Uh Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And no, so that people knew exactly how to respond and, you know, what rights were there and what you should do and should not do and yeah. all of that. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and the thing is that the person who resigned, he's absolutely right. If you look at ICE's reports and how they word it and the language that they use to present a picture of a false picture, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. of the violent criminal alien, you really start looking at the stats. They pat like you really have to look between the lines of what they're actually saying when the statistics really don't reflect the reality. But on the other side, you know, they're the first ones to say, well, what about Katie Steinle who got killed in San Francisco? And and so they'll overinflate the one or two people that it's not going to represent the entire immigrant community. And so I think it's I'm at the point now where I really don't care. Because I, I yeah. you know, the comments, yeah. I'm sure people are listening to me right now and being like, who's this crazy Puerto Rican dude? But I'm going to say it again, and I we have the proof. ICE lies. Listen to us today on Latino USA. That's one example. And it wow. really bothers me as a journalist because I'm getting targeted now by ICE well, this for is, reporting this. This piece is about James Schwab, who worked at the agency. So this is an inside voice. It was his job to put out the information and... He uh, is supporting what you just said. So there you have it. And something the folks with the network said was that they're getting targeted, too. They're getting all these threatening messages, phone calls. I think the quote was something to the effect of this is what dialogue about immigration looks like in this time. It's fear and intimidation. And it will continue to be so until our representatives decide they're going to do something about it for real. So but I don't know. Well, here's someone who wants to be a representative again. (laughs) 
<laughs> William Latigua. Um, many people remember him from Lawrence. Uh, he was mayor. At one point, he was in the state legislature. At one point, he was both at the same time, and then he was forced to give up the state legislature to be mayor of Lawrence and then lost that seat to Daniel Rivera, tried again, and still lost it to Daniel Rivera. So now he's coming back because he, since he lost the mayor's race, and he wants to go back to the state house. Mm. Christella, your response, please. I don't know if I have a response. I'll be very honest. I haven't been up here long enough to really comment, I would say. <laughs> How about like, that? She like, haven't been here for the back like, and forth. There's no history. Yeah, yeah. there is no there is no history or context for me here. Yes. I think it raises the, the bigger issue with Lantigua. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of baggage, yeah. I, 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 to, to say yes. the least. Some people have been following this locally. I think it raises the issue of the bigger issue, Kelly, about like leadership in the state with Latinos, that mediocrity or people like, you know, someone like Lantigua is still considered like because of the name recognition, like that the community is still kind of like, oh, well, I'm going to run because I'm like as opposed to trying to find the new voices that are going to come out and be like, you know what, I got no baggage. And yeah. I think like it does raise a, a bigger issue, a bigger question about just how as a community, how we view politicians or how we like, it's okay. Go back to the Dominican Republic. It's fine. Like it, you Try lost, you lost, yes. like it's okay. <clears throat> and I just think like we put, we divert a lot of attention on certain politicians who, to be honest with you, they don't have the best record. Well, this is true. I just, for people who don't know the history, um, like Cristela wasn't here for the, all the mini go rounds with, uh, William Latiga, his, uh, his um, mayorship particularly was tainted with a lot of corruption, mm. our connections to corruption. And and yet he remains quite popular uh, in some circles. And so there was a back and forth uh, about the mayor's race a couple of times. And um, he's challenged uh, Daniel Rivera, who won the seat from him more than once. So I guess he thought, well, I'll get back to the state legislature, and we'll see what happens. But he, he's an interesting character, I gotta say. To say the least. <laughs> to say you, the least. You know, if I could say one thing, mm -hmm. I, I I do spend some time in, in Lawrence, Chelsea, and Lynn. Um, I just I really like those communities in general. Um, I've gotten to to get to know the youth. Um, I have a friend that mentors in Lynn. I'm trying to mentor in Lawrence. I kind of I'm looking forward to the new generation of politicians. I'm looking forward to the kids in that community who I've heard spit poetry and do arts, and they're doing some incredible things in the mills. I kind of feel like whatever's coming is going to be better than maybe what's been. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's All the right. Point. Well, there, you, there go. you go. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Julio Ricardo Varela of Latino Rebels and the Futuro Media Group and Cristela Guerra of the Boston Globe. We're talking about issues and stories affecting the Latinx community in Massachusetts and nationwide. So here's an interesting piece that came out about uh, – political candidates who have been reluctant, oddly, to invest in Spanish language television ads, but in this certainly in this midterm are seeing some great results. Uh, I wanted to play one from uh, Sur Nevada. This is uh, a Spanish language ad for Catherine Cortez Masta of Nevada, who became the first Latina elected to the U.S. Senate in 2017, and it's in Spanish. Catherine Cortés Masto inició investigaciones de fraude hipotecario contra los bancos más grandes de la nación y los demandó para hacerlos responsables, recuperando casi 2 mil millones de dólares para las familias de Nevada. Catherine Cortés Masto, de nuestra comunidad a nuestro lado. So the ad said she recouped about $2 billion for Nevada families, and she's from our community, the ad says, and by our side, and she says, you know, I'm Catherine Cortez Masto, and I approve this message. 
you know, I read this and I thought, duh, doesn't everybody know this? I, I was just kind of surprised that people would know that this would obviously draw people in. And mm. well, it, it, I don't get this. Well, consider the source, because okay. I think one of the things that about this, which I think you're right, it's obvious. I do know the, the polling group, uh, Latino Decisions, and obviously um, you're in the business of, of politicking and campaigning. And, you know, if, if you can pr provide proof that Spanish language ads are effective, uh, of course that's going to, you know, help your cause. Maybe you're doing polling in Spanish or might, you're also marketing yourself to political campaigns. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, but the, the reality of, of the market, and you have to be, honest is that Spanish language television is dying. Like it's not growing. It's actually, you know. Well, we've talked about but Spanish language going yeah. to But it's English. still about 20 yeah. to 30% right. of, right. of the country and they right. get their, their news in Spanish. And I actually know Steven Nuno, the person who wrote this for NBC News, uh, really well. Um, I don't think it's the only strategy. I think you have to look at this, the fact that there's Spanish dominant first generation voters who get their news from Univision and Telemundo and that's one. There's bilingual, bicultural People that might be third or fourth generation who might be more, you know, are English dominant and are bilingual um, and speak Spanish, but don't watch Univision or Telemundo mm -hmm. and don't need ads in Spanish. And then there's like English dominant Latinos. Right. And I think I think what, what's happened is that the previous time you'd only see Spanish language ads mm -hmm. right in previous like political generations. Um, and now you kind of see a mix. So. Yeah, are you missing Spanish language voters in Nevada because you do? Yeah, of course you are. Maybe you should do more. I get that, but at the same time, I don't think it's a blanket statement. So, I, what struck me about the piece was it said cultural appeals by non-Latinos using these ads yeah. can bridge the gap between Hispanics and white candidates. So, okay, so let's let's take your point and and, yeah. and I'll let Cristela yeah, respond. Yeah. Cristela mm -hmm. respond to this. Um, Duh, you know, people say that. <laughs> and, and, you know, the the only people that maybe would be excited about it are the people watching, you know, telenovas. But the millennials, as we've discussed here, are very English forward. Mm -hmm. But does it not demonstrate your attempt, if you're non-Latino, to be culturally appropriate? And is does that not get you a few bennies? It's acknowledgement, <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, I, I, I feel like, man, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of story of, you know, how many people can you reach? Yeah. And if these people have never been reached before by a politician speaking their language for some reason, which, I mean, I came from Florida, so I'm kind of, you know, I, this isn't, this isn't new, for this isn't new for me. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think in the same way you got to a point where Miami started putting up signs in Spanish, mm -hmm. in the same way you have areas of Detroit in, in Arabic, the acknowledgement of their presence, even if. I think it's also saying maybe they don't speak English. Maybe they do speak English, yeah. right. but they're trying to speak in the language that they know best. So what that does for voters, I think, is up to the voter. Right. You know. And I also think like it's like when you say non Latinos reaching out to Spanish speaking mm -hmm. voters, uh, do it right as well. Well, because that's, that's you know because yeah. that you know the notion of hispandering. Which if people don't know, Ooh, I, I have my, not heard yeah, of that. Yeah, come on, it's Spandering. I've, I've written a lot about it. I've <laughs> okay. been on NPR. Like it's it's kind of it's kind of my jam. Okay. Um, <laughs> like one of the things of how politicians, well, you know, there's they, they're not being authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, yeah. just to take the example of of so they throw an Ola in and yeah, or like <laughs> like Florida exactly. governor's risk is a good example. Like, yeah, he really like his Spanish is like like he really tries to speak Spanish. Like it's not really good, 
but you can just tell he he try he, like it's very natural for him to do like a press conference like he, in in English and then we'll provide an answer in Spanish. So I give someone like Rick Scott like you're trying, dude. I'll mm -hmm. give you that. It's like you admit that your Spanish is not good, but at least you're trying to be like, yeah, I understand that there's a lot of people in Florida that I'm the governor and they don't speak English. Mm -hmm. So so but at the same time, I also think that some when you do it like you know, if you go into like the the you know the Mexican restaurant with like a mariachi and you're like okay yeah. dude like calm down yeah. you know what I'm saying yeah. like that's kind of bad it's yeah. like just, so you got oh, you're eating a taco you need uh, yeah, yeah you need authenticity yeah. so I think yeah. like yes like cultural sensitivity but yeah. but you, you have to consider the source that you know these people are in the business of political messaging and and a group like Latinos and I give them all the credit you want to you want to yeah. say like yeah. hey yeah. use us or like this is why we do this study because we can help you. Exactly. And so I, I welcome it. So I, I hope they don't take it as a critique because is, they're friends of mine. Is it a shtick? Is it a yeah, gimmick? Yes, is exactly. it is and that people can is that, smell that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if we can go back a little bit. Mm -hmm. The Taco Bowl incident on Twitter. Oh, yeah. That oh, was terrible. That was, a, that was um. That was terrible. Yeah. It was a, you know. It was a I thing. mean, I think we all, there was a lot of think pieces about yes, that. Yes. There was a lot of discussion yes. about what that was. There was, was a like. lot of his standering <laughs> yes, pieces. You know. People don't remember that was yeah. a then candidate uh, uh, President uh, Trump, uh, then candidate Trump saying, um, uh, with a picture of a big taco bowl in front of him saying, I love taco bowls, they're my favorite, or something, something. And it was like, ooh, ouch. I I'm sure other people tried to warn him from doing that, but whatever. <laughs> uh so that's what we mean by his pandering. That's not good. But okay. I got a couple of cultural things I just want to try to squeeze in here. One is there's an off-Broadway uh, musical called Miss You Like Hell. Mm -hmm. I want to play a little clip um, because it's uh, uh, really interesting. So it's uh, this clip is from Mothers, Miss You Like Hell. Daphne Rubin Vega plays mother Beatrice and Giselle Jimenez plays daughter Olivia. And the musical is on stage at the Public Theater in New York and was written by Kiera Allegria Hudis, who wrote the book for the Tony Award-winning musical In the Heights, which I love. So here's a little excerpt from this. Mothers will make you eat your greens. Mothers will bring you midnight snacks. Mothers will teach you where you're from. Mothers will love you where you're at. Tolerate the combat boots. Help you walk in heels. Mothers get your first tattoo. Estás loca. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a great. Um, they're touching on a lot of issues, but it's it's really the relationship between the mother and the daughter, the different um, generations. They're it's set in contemporary times, so they're dealing with immigration issues, cultural issues, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I'm getting it. a yeah. lot of attention. That's yeah, uh, Luis Luna, who who yeah. works with me mm -hmm. um, at Futuro Media, who's a great kid wrote an amazing review of Latino Rebels. And if people have, you, you got to read it because it does speak to the it, it, the generation, the immigration issue. Oh, by the way, it happened during the Obama era. Let's remind, like this mm -hmm. whole thing, this is not a Trump yeah. bashing oh. musical, right? Uh, but it obviously has said relevance, times. Yes. but it's okay. said during the Obama, like yeah. during the Obama phase. But I think it's a very relevant, the issue of mothers and daughters and cultural, the fact that the, the daughter is not really culturally connected to yeah. the mother, like, and yeah. and even though she's quote unquote woke, I just think it's a fascinating layered, um, layered show, and um, it's getting amazing reviews. There was a oh, sorry, mm. no, no, I was gonna say there was a part in that article where she, she didn't know what ice was, mm. yes, which I thought was yeah. so yeah. compelling, yeah. considering yeah. that's this foreboding for her mother. That is 
that is something hanging over her head all the time, right? right? Yes. Also, the tattoo comment makes me think of my mom. Yeah, I get it. All right, I got to end with this because we've been talking about his pandering and some other things, and um, this looks like co-option, but mm, just got to get your way in on it. So Heinz uh, announced that they have a big, unique <laughs> product that they're about to push. Yes. They're calling it Mayo Chup. That's a combination of mayonnaise oh, and ketchup. And um, all across across Twitter, people lost their minds and said, yeah. it is not original. This has been happening in Latina households for 900,000 years. What are you talking about? So, my, mayo ketchup. It's like, like <laughs> mayo ketchup. I don't know. That, I know that's how we say it in Puerto Rico. I know there's yeah. other ways like... In, in Venezuela, salsa, there there, play, there are other things that um, they're they're called, right? Yeah, and yeah. Argentina has a name. I I don't remember what it salsa is. Salsa rosada in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. 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 Then, yeah. Um, but it's basically ketchup and mayonnaise, and it's awesome. And I grew up with it. And yeah. come on, Heinz, like please. <laughs> yeah. But did you see the shade Goya? Did you see the shade, the Twitter shade Goya? Um, created mayo ketchup, like, but it, you can get it in in, in supermarkets. Yeah. You can get them anywhere. Yeah. Um, for the last 10 years in, in Boston and they totally like Twitter shaded Heinz and they're like, Oh, excuse me. Excuse me, Heinz. Like we, we did this way before you, like you want to talk about cultural, like that is like the, like if people lost it, they lost it for the right reasons. Well, Utah claims that they call it fry sauce. Oh, yeah. That you, there's someone, some, I forget what the restaurant is. They call it fry sauce. I, I've had it in Ghana. Oh wow! I mean, this is not. I think this this is this crosses continents. You know, okay, it's yeah. a delicious thing that I, Latinos. Yeah, definitely, we claim it for sure. But I think a lot of people claim it. It can't be. I don't know if this can be turned it's into. It's like the official condiment of Puerto Rico. I'm sorry. Also, that name is not. Yeah, my yeah. Don't even look the name. Ketchup. Mayo, yeah, yeah, mayo, mayo ketchup, ketchup is. Yeah. Mayo, you say mayo ketchup. You mayo say ketchup. mayo ketchup. Mayo you don't ketchup. say mayo chup, which is I what they're don't doing. Mean, I can't. Chup. I can't say it. I just can't say it. Kelly. Okay. All right. Um, well, I'm going to suggest that perhaps they put their ad in. Spanish and <laughs> and maybe they'll do a cultural reach out. That's that's, that's <laughs> what that's, do you think? Well, remember what happened with Nova. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're ending on that note. I want to thank you both for joining me today. <laughs> thank you, Kelly. <laughs> thank you very much. Julio Ricardo Varela is the co-host of the In the Thick podcast, Latino USA contributor and founder of Latino Rebels, and Cristela Guerra is a reporter at the Boston Globe. Coming up, being a drag queen isn't just about strutting down the runway and serving face. Company One Theater's production of Terrell Alvin McCraney's forward-thinking play Wig Out showcases the depth and complexity of drag culture, exploring issues of sexuality, identity, and gender, all within the confines of a fun and fierce show. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Drag culture is beginning to catwalk its way into the mainstream culture with RuPaul's Drag Race in its 10th season and Ryan Murphy's upcoming show Pose on FX getting plenty of buzz. But one aspect of drag culture is still pretty much underground, competitive balls. This spectacular scene is the setting for Terrell Alvin McCraney's play Wig Out. The play hits the Oberon stage starting April 26th through May 13th. Joining me in the studio, 
Summer L. Williams, director of Wig Out. Summer is also a co-founder and associate artistic director of Company One Theater in Boston. Hello, Summer. Hi. And also with me, Dean Rollins, who plays Eric in Wig Out. Hello, Dean. How you doing? I'm great. Well, this is a fun play with other stuff going on. But first, just for people hearing these expressions and wondering, what are we talking about? Let's talk about what a ball really is, because that is the setting for the play. Sure. Uh, uh, It is a competitive space uh, that is full of love and fun where people walk categories. And the categories can range from realness to face to mad scientist to anything that you can dream up. It is really a place of creative expression a place of fun and like fierce competition. The categories get deep and there's money involved. And so there's a an opportunity for people to kind of win not only status, but also kind of to take home something. And Terrell McCraney wrote this play 2008. You know, that's a gap of time in which things have shifted. In pop culture, things always shift. So it's pretty interesting to me that this still... Dean holds a lot of weight even today. Definitely. And mm-hmm. I think uh, something that Terrell McCraney did do in writing the play is made comments about yes, it's important to understand like time is changing. So making sure that this might not be up to date right now. So, like, how does the director then make choices to make it more current, make it apply to the times? Had you heard about this play before? Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. I he- I've heard about it, um, got to see some readings of it, and I was really excited when I got the opportunity to be a part of the cast. And, Summer, why this play now for this season? One thing I think, you know, Terrell Alva McCraney is a genius, right? And by the way, we should say he co-wrote Moonlight. Yes. So people, yes. yes. It was based on his play. Exactly. And then he co-wrote the movie Moonlight. So people should understand that. Yeah. Uh, And Mm. so he's just bona fide genius. So he wrote this play almost 10 10 years ago Mm. uh, so and had been in development before then. And the people weren't ready, right? Like the culture, the consciousness was not ready for it. It is ready for it now. And he did some updates for the last production that was mm. at the Studio Theater in D.C. And so we, Company One Theater, will always read whatever Terrell Alvin McCraney writes. Uh, if he wrote a grocery list, we're like, let's check it out. Um, because we're always looking to see w- what he's doing and the stories that he's telling. And when we made the decision for season 19 to be about telling the stories of black male identity and all that that could contain in the world, which is counter-narrative, right? We knew that a Terrell Alvin McCraney piece needed to be a part of that season. And to underscore what you just said, to also show the broad spectrum of what that means, because people may think they know, and it's actually much more than any narrow image they may hold in their head. 100%. And mm-hmm. we're only told one aspect of a narrative that that isn't even true a lot of the times. And to do something that flies in the face of that, it feels like, you know, we like to exist in the intersection of theater and, and social change, right? And so this is our way at chipping away at systemic racism. Because if you're telling a story that is countering the narrative, then you are doing away with a system by way of bringing something to the forefront. So I want to give people a sense of what ball culture is like. So we have three clips we've put together from televised versions of the ball scene, including clips from this season of RuPaul's Drag Race, a clip from Pose, an upcoming scripted series on FX directed by Ryan Murphy, and My House, a documentary series on Viceland. We're throwing a ball! Ah! Yeah! 
That's right. For this week's Maxi Challenge, you'll be competing in the last ball on Earth. The ballroom is about us. We took dance from mainstream and posing in magazines and created Vogue. It's a place you can live out a fantasy that you never lived before. At the core of it, it's community. It's about being alone and then finding people that are just like you. I'm able to be true to myself in a space where that's celebrated. That makes me feel beautiful. Ballroom is helping me break barriers. I remember skipping school to know what the culture was about. I didn't have no male role models. Ballroom filled that void of family. My gender, my sexuality, my talent speaks for itself. I see myself as a household name, as a legend. So that gives people a kind of a good sense of what they'll be seeing in Wig Out. But in the play, there are two houses who are competing fiercely for uh, the title of, at the Cinderella Ball. And Dean, you have an interesting role to play because you are the love interest for someone who's very much a popular player in all of this in one of the houses. Talk about your role and, and how you see it. Definitely. So Eric has written incredibly. Eric is an outsider, someone who is stepping into this world for the first time. Definitely knows about the world, definitely knows that it exists, however, is trying to figure out what his place in that world is. He falls in love with, well, exploring that. Is it love or is it just like fascination right now? So really trying to think about uh, his relationship with the character Nina, who's non-binary, so Nina Wilson is their name. And he goes into this world and is amazed by how large it is, how, how beautiful it is, how brilliant it is, but is also dealing with prejudices about how they understand gender expression, how they understand femininity, masculinity, how that looks on someone who is assigned male at birth, and trying to cope with their discomfort while being completely amazed by the spectacle of the show. So I imagine that uh, Terrell made him an observer for us, for we, the viewer, to observe through him and sort of learn about this world in that way and also explore some of the themes you just mentioned. Does it feel that way to you? Definitely feels mm-hmm. that way to me. I think that we need, as an audience, we need to have that individual who we can relate with. And the character, Eric, says some stuff that is really hard for me to even like kind of grapple with. Uh, their comfort level with individuals who are male-bodied that are expressing more feminine qualities and really being disturbed about that. So having our, an opportunity to watch someone have to work through that and then as an audience see ourselves in that person or maybe not see ourselves in that person is incredible. And that's where the catharsis comes from. And I think what adds a layer of complexity or may for some people who are observing through his eyes is that Eric is gay, but he's struggling around what's happening here Mm -hmm. and and who am I in this picture, which I think is the broader theme of what's happening right now, Summer, as we are in this interesting environment, the kind of conversations that are going on. Everybody would agree there's been a lot of movement in a positive way in the LBGTQ community. But in other ways, you know, we're sort of uh, stymied Mm -hmm. about moving forward and discussing some things that make people really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what Terrell is trying to do in his play. Absolutely. I think one of the things I latched onto immediately after I read the piece for the first time was this love story that kind of did not exist on a binary of sexuality or of gender, that it was about examining two people who, like, find themselves in this deep attraction, potential love for one another. And one of them being able to say to the other, like, 
there's something I really dig about you. There's something I could really love about you, but not all of you. And I don't think that is, one, something that we are often told, a story we are often told, particularly in the queer community, right? We expect that there's like this openness, that there's this sense of like... It's all love for everybody. It's all love for everybody. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But to like watch someone have, to be challenged by someone else's declaration of independence and fullness of self without label is really, it was fascinating to me. And then to understand that people are going to think, oh, I know what this story is about. It's going to be this thing that I've seen on TV. It's mm. going to be this thing uh, that is like now suddenly popular. I can go to drag brunch and that's what that story is going to be about. The narrative is so complex. It's so rich with things that are deeply connected to identity, connected to gender, connected to sexuality. And what happens when, if you decide to not label yourself by any of those three things, how do you walk in the world that you... Who are you? Who are you, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think people are often asked to define who they are only by those things. And when they're challenged to not define by those things and to still seek what they want, that's kind of a really interesting piece. And, of course, Terrell McCraney is the guy to do it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm here with director Summer L. Williams and actor Dean Rollins, and we're discussing Wig Out, the latest production of Company One Theater, in conjunction with the American Repertory Theater. So way back when, it's going to feel like now, in 1990, there was a documentary that became fairly well-known in some circles called Paris is Burning, which is about the New York ball scene. Let's play a clip of that, and then I want to come back to you about what it stirred at that time. You know, a ball is ours. We prepare for a ball. We, we may spend more time preparing for a ball than anybody would spend preparing for anything else. Exactly. You know, a ball is like true. our world, you know. Balls ball. to us is as close to reality as we're going to get to all of that fame and fortune and stardom and spotlights. Now, the reason I wanted to play that from Paris is Burning is because there was a lot of discussion then about how some people were co-opting that scene, Madonna, chief among them. She had a very popular song called Vogue, which, you know, many people didn't know came directly from this scene. And it raised many questions about ownership and who gets to tell the story. So back to you, Dean. The fact that Terrell McCraney is an openly gay man and also an accomplished playwright who has can have both a very inside perspective and then write this story in a way that can be drawing in other people, I think is critical to telling the story in a way that I think a lot was lost uh, when Paris is Burning came out. Would you agree? I definitely would agree with that statement. Terrell, being a, a black, openly gay man, has an ability to tell these the stories of these male black characters in this world and really relate to how to express that story, yes. But uh, I think that something that was important that came out of Paris is Burning, and the thing that's most important is that we need individuals telling these stories, regardless of who they are, to open up conversations. And Paris was Burning was great because it began to stimulate the conversation back in the 90s. And we need to continue doing that. We're not going to grow as a culture, as a society, as a people, unless we create multiple outlets for people to enter into this conversation as well. Well, you know, you're right. You know, the, the filmmakers did Paris is Burning as, a, as, as presenting a truth, and then the co-option happens as the co-option mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. They, they don't mm-hmm. have any control over uh, how that happens. But I wonder if you think that at that time, it seemed like it went away. We didn't hear much about it. And then all of a sudden, or maybe it feels like all of a sudden, here's RuPaul, here's some other things going on, and it's really 
kind of mainstream now. Mm -hmm. People are throwing around language and situations that come directly. They they may not even know that it's associated with this scene. Right. I I Mm. think there's something interesting about culture and the way culture appropriates culture, if you will. (laughs) There's so much of what is considered like kind of pop culture language that has been co-opted from the ball scene, from the drag scene, from queer culture, particularly from people of color within Mm. queer culture. And the thing that I think is most interesting about the ball scene is that a part of my understanding is that it kind of was born out of being pushed aside and pushed out of other queer spaces. And I think when we think about where are the queer spaces, like literally and figuratively, those queer spaces are often not necessarily people of color spaces. And so a a big part Mm. of what the ballroom scene did was kind of make space for those two things to exist, right? And it was by force. And all things that I think kind of come out of or become current culture, popular culture, have all been things that have kind of been forced out of us, out of a probably a less than pleasant experience. Well, I mean, that's the tension. That's part of the tension in Wig Out Mm -hmm. um, and between the houses. Those are the underlying themes that are going on. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Let's talk about this language because, you know, the play is set in a very fun space as well. Um, You know, there's a lot of music, a lot of really fun music. A lot of good music. Really, really a lot of good music so people won't be able to stay in their seats. That's right. (laughs) But there's also this language that's going on and we found this clip that we thought might be instructive for people. This is a clip from Vanity Fair a video explaining drag slang featuring four queens who competed in RuPaul's Drag Race. This is Detox, Kimchi, Shangela, and Raja. Tea is your truth. Tea is what is the tea? Like, what is your truth? What's going on with you? Serve. It's serving it, honey. When you give yourself a look and you are delivering it so proper that you are serving it to everybody. You're serving it to the children. Geesh is when you're getting up into the gig, honey. It's like... Yes, mm-hmm. that is your makeup when you're getting up in geesh in your gig. When you read a girl, is when you let them know about themselves. So mm-hmm. it's like almost as if I'm like opening up a book. Yes. And the book has statements of all how terrible you are. Come through. Come through is a phrase when you want to tell somebody, yes, you are doing it. You are the one. Come through. Work. work. It really means acknowledging the effort and yes. not acknowledging the amount of work. Kiki is us right now. Girlfriends hanging out. Yes. Having fun. <laughs> having a kiki. <laughs> Okay, that's a little glossary (laughs) provided to you uh, by the folks from RuPaul's Drag Space. But in fact, language is very integral to this play. Absolutely. The play is so much about culture that it needs the language to help make sure that it's being authentic to the culture. And also it helps to kind of drop us into the center of this world, right? The world of the play is so rich. I want the experience when people to walk in, like, you know, you go into the Oberon, I'm going to see like a funky theater piece, right? Like there's going to be some music there and it'll be interesting. And maybe I'll have to spin around and look and not just kind of watch the stage. But I want people to feel like they've been dropped into an entirely different universe and not a different universe because there's something about it that is strange or foreign or unfamiliar, but a different universe because suddenly what I thought I was going to participate in is not, right? Because suddenly people are coming at me from all sides and they're talking to me and they're in my face and then they're far away and it's intimate and it's like heaven and humanity all happening at once. That's the fun. And in fact, the Oberon, which some people may know in Cambridge, a small theater in Cambridge, is set up for interactiveness Mm -hmm. with the audience. So this is going to be a particular function. And I wonder, it seems to me in this particular play, Wig Out, 
the space is also a character. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Summer has us moving around. Uh, We're all over that building. Uh, You're going to be looking up, looking looking left, right, right next to you if you're sitting by the catwalk. Get the seats by the catwalk. Um, Which was especially built for this play in that space. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels good then, Dean. Oh, it feels real good. And and it's a challenge. It's Mm -hmm. a challenge for the actors to be cognizant of the entire space, but also it feels liberating as well. The ability to know that I could look anywhere and somebody sees me is something important to know and fun. So one of the things that I was interested in in your materials is that you have uh, somebody called a dramaturg who is very much a part of putting this play on. Tell to me about that role and, and what's happening there. Yeah, sure. We have two dramaturgs, oh, two. Al- Alana <laughs> okay. and Fran, because it is deep. Okay. It is deep work. It is Terrell Abba McCraney. We need two um, <laughs> to catch all these references, right? <laughs> and so a part of that function in the room, one, is to keep an eye on the story and to make sure that we are telling the story in our truest way possible. Another function is to be a resource for me and for the actors and for our designers in terms of really making sure we're digging into the depth of the text. There's Shakespearean reference, there's Game of Thrones reference, there's music reference all over this thing. And really delightful, obscure bits. Like, it'll be, I'm really excited to know, like, those moments where when we watch when we're finally open and people like get things and I feel like oh I thought I was the only person who knew that reference and like oh no there's like a whole little world of us who know what that is and then other people be like what what just happened Uh, because it's so important uh, in terms of a part of the culture that it's represented and so our dramaturg staff really help us to kind of deepen that work and then they also help us to make sure that contextually uh, we are speaking to the audience in a way that not only uh, helps them to to engage and understand the story, but also says, yes, I feel compelled to do after participating in this experience. If you're just tuning in, it's Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with director Summer L. Williams. You just heard her. And actor Dean Rollins. And we're discussing Wig Out, the latest production of Company One Theater in conjunction with the American Repertory Theater at the Oberon Theater. (laughs) Dean, how important has the dramaturg influence been for you? Oh, it's been incredibly helpful, especially uh, I joined the group a little bit later than the rest of the cast. And when I finally got to the team, I had a wealth of knowledge about the world, about what I was getting into. Uh, we get glossaries, we get images, links to music, listen to this, check out this, watch this clip. But it really provides, again, the context for understanding this world a little bit more personally. What do you want people to take away from the play as one who is really, I mean, I'm listening to you and you're, you're really in deep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I believe that it is important for us as a community to understand the variance in gender expression, the face that we give the world, and providing an outlet for people to celebrate that gender expression. How do you want to be seen? To hear how people want to be seen, to be able to name them the way they want to be named, and really just create a world that is opening up to everyone. And this play provides that space. Uh, And I think that's important. I think that's why we're doing it now. Our world is in need of that. And Summer, how would you answer that question? I want people to, one, feel like they had a full experience, like to like come away from that space and feel like, whoo, I just had a great meal. <laughs> like, And I want to tell everyone about this great meal. Like, I feel like my soul was fed in some way that I didn't expect. I want people to see young, queer, black and brown people 
at the forefront of their own story because that rarely happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want people to find themselves in a space where they feel 100% comfortable being themselves. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always happen, period. That doesn't always happen in the theater. And it's really important that a part of what this experience is, is creating that space where people feel like, whew, I'm home. <laughs> is it fair to say that this is a play with a message, but not a message play? <laughs> I <laughs> so. Message. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a part of, yes, yes, 100%. There's, you know, message on message on message. Um, uh, and the, and it's so like specific and uh, layered that I think depending on who you are in the world and how you walk in the world, different things are going to hit you in a very different way, uh, which is really exciting. And ultimately, like, you know, love is love is love is love, love right? Dean, what's your favorite part of playing this role? Ooh, favorite part of playing this and role? And you're Eric again for people who didn't catch it. I think my favorite part of playing this role is... My ability to listen to everyone else. Eric mm. is around for a lot of it and just has to... I get to experience things as You're if absorbing. Yeah, just absorbing it all, yeah. all the way through it and listening. Really listening to the language and how people are talking and responding to it. And questioning, being like, huh? What? <laughs> um, you'll hear that a couple times. Um, I think that's the most fun. Being with the cast and watching them create. And being a part of them creating this beautiful world. Well, do you think now that some aspects of drag culture, ball culture have entered the mainstream still in a very minimal way? I mean, we should say some people know and they know that this will eventually be a period piece (laughs) or will it always evolve to the moment? Yeah, I think at some point, well, it will be a period piece at some point because it's rooted in a different time than now. But I also think there's something about it ever evolving and kind of will kind of stay a couple of beats ahead of where the kind of common consciousness is. Well, I thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to encourage everybody to wig out with you. <laughs> I love the way you say it. Wig out. I love it. Summer L. Williams is a director of Wig Out and a co-founder and associate artistic director of Company One Theater in Boston. And Dean Rollins plays Eric in Wig Out. Wig Out will take the stage at the Oberon in Cambridge from April 26th through May 13th More details at companyone.org. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Walk. Walk.